Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 62 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike, and that is Gavin. And apparently we both have next week off. This is good news. It sure is, uh, although I don't know that for sure yet. Um, so my wonderful fiance uh, basically su- surprised me with, for Valentine's Day with uh, some tickets to a comedy show of a comedian uh, who... I've heard of, and I thought she was funny. She was on a podcast uh, that I enjoy and was like, oh, that person's funny. And then... Uh, Does she have I, a name? So the reason why I haven't said it is because I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Let me actually... <laughs> Fortune Feimster. I couldn't remember if it was like Feimeister or something like that, but Fortune Feimster. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, she is performing in a town uh, nearby you know, where I live. And at this point, uh, I thought, well, we both thought that I would be uh, at a different like project other than the one that I'm still at in the desert. I was told Mm -hmm. it'd be starting in like late January, but sometimes with this line of work, you know, timelines get pushed around and stuff. So, you know, it's not that I didn't see this coming, but I guess I probably should have been clearer with that uh, too my wonderful fiance. So she surprised me for Valentine's day. And it was like, well, if you're going to be down in the desert, uh, you know, pick who I get to go with, I guess. Happy Valentine's day. Um, cause she, cause she wasn't going to not go. Cause I would be, I wouldn't be there. <laughs> she was still going to go. That wasn't uh, going to stop her. No. Uh, so then I just, uh, asked my boss was like, Hey, so, uh, are we going back to like a rotation where it's like, you know, a couple people on and then somebody gets a week off. She was like, yeah, we're actually starting that this week. I was like, cool. Can my off week be next week? And she was like, I mean, I'm making the schedule today. So probably. So as far as I know, I have next week off, but I don't know that for sure. Well, congratulations. This has been a, uh, a scheduled winter break. Next week has been a scheduled winter break for me for months at this point. So cool <laughs> I, i've known that <laughs> it's nice to have set schedules in advance i guess there's yeah. uh, there's some inflexibility with that but it is nice to know kind of when things are yeah and it, i always forget that high school has a break then because college doesn't you know college just has spring break in march and so i always forget that like winter break is a thing at least in most schools in new york yeah, it's uh, it's kind of nice. I mean, the one big problem is that March just takes forever because there's yeah, yeah. there's nothing going on in March. But there's St. Patrick's the, Day. There is St. Patrick's Day. You don't get and, sometime, off for and that. sometimes Easter. Yeah, uh, sometimes you don't get days off for either of those. But <laughs> it is uh, it is definitely nice, um, being able to have the breaks both in February and in April. Yeah, definitely. All right, so Gavin, uh, you want to quickly talk about uh, give a little preview of what we're talking about today? Absolutely. So. Today we're going to be talking about a, a little thing that you may have heard of if you've ever seen uh, a, l- a little indie movie, maybe you've heard of it, uh, called Jurassic Park. Uh, we're going to be talking about a piece Did we ever of, discuss that? Maybe once or twice. Uh, but we're going to be talking about something featured in the movie Jurassic Park, which is Amber, the thing that they supposedly got dinosaur DNA from mosquitoes inside of. We'll talk about it. Um, but we're going to be talking about Amber, what it is, how it forms some of the cool paleontology things and maybe some of the not so cool paleontology things. Um, <laughs> but before we get into that, I have a quick little update on something we've talked about the last couple episodes, uh, which would be the mill Canyon trackway site in Utah that we've sort of talked about a couple of times. I think that in the previous two episodes, not an update as long as the last couple of episodes, 
but more or less, uh, things I think are tentatively getting a little better. I did reach out to some people to see if uh, they would be willing to come onto the podcast. Um, a couple of them that I reached out to just said that they don't really have time. You know, they're they're people with lives. I get it. Um, but also a couple of people uh, that I reached out to didn't say this directly, but I heard from people that like, yeah, some paleontologists don't kind of want to talk about it publicly because uh, this be like, because it's the Bureau of Land Management, the BLM, uh, they control the permitting for uh, a lot of field work in that area. And so they kind of don't want to talk about it publicly because they can, the granted, this would be a bad thing for a federal employee to do, but you know, everybody has their own biases and agendas. Um, so they just didn't want to take that risk. And I, I understand that. I get that. So, yeah, um, as frustrating as it is, you know, right. So we, we are, yeah. yeah. So we, we are going to try to have somebody who has some affiliation with, uh, the site on the podcast soonish, um, probably not next week. Um, uh, but so that, that is a goal whether that ends up happening or not. Um, I hope it does, but I just wanted to put that back on everybody's radar. That is still a thing that exists. I know our uh, collective attention span is very small, uh, myself included. So, uh, (laughs) so this is still a thing that is happening and that is a problem, but tentatively getting better. Maybe we'll talk about it more soon. So I would very much enjoy if we had a chance to, uh, to talk with it, especially somebody who, uh, you know, who was boots on the ground, if that was ever possible. Yeah, definitely. Or maybe even just like a journalist from, you know, like Moab or even like Salt Lake that is, you know, familiar with it and and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So um, anyway, from that, Mike, do you have a today in history? Because I have have a really I have a really quick one. uh, Well, go ahead and do your your real quick one. I also have a a very quick one. Okay, cool. Um, Um, That is, you know, not gonna be too much to talk about, but go ahead. What do you got? Yeah, not even really a today in history, but uh, this past weekend on the 12th was Darwin Day, named after oh, all right. everybody's fa- uh, favorite uh, evolution, uh, I don't, like hero, I guess, <laughs> is, is how people sort of see him. Uh, evolutionary theorist, Charles Darwin. Uh, he has a holiday on February 12th every year. Uh, I believe that's his birthday, if I remember correctly. So uh, happy okay. b- belated birthday to Chuck. Okay. That's it. That's it. That's, That's all you all got? It. Yep. So, uh, <laughs> speaking of heroes, this is a great transition. Transition. Uh, in 1991, so, you know, we got the Olympics going on right now. This is not um, not an Olympic year, but um, at the uh, at the female figure skating championships, oh, they were won boy. by none other than Tanya Harding oh, in boy. 1991. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, this no. Is, this is several years before she became famous for that other thing. But, uh, yeah, Tanya Harding. <laughs> Uh, winning championships out here in 1991. See, I know her. Before I knew who she actually was, she was on some uh, America's Funniest Home Video esque show on True TV. I don't, even, I don't even remember what it was called, but it was like vaguely famous people commenting on viral viral videos on the internet, and she was one of them. Oh, I had no idea what I, she I'm was famous they for. Let her do that. I have no idea what she was famous for. Absolutely no idea until like a couple of years later. And like when I watched it, I was like, I don't know, like a mid teens probably. And then I actually learned like what she was famous for. And I was like, oh, oh no. Yeah. If you, if you don't know what you said, and like, it's not like it's that bad. No, but, uh, but yeah, like, like, especially, especially in terms of things we're going to be talking here. about today. 
Yeah, yeah. It'll take us a hot minute to explain it here. So just go look up uh, Tanya Harding, and then like you'll understand. When I giggled a little bit when I said hero. Um, <laughs> and with that, um, I think we are ready to actually uh, get to our main topic of the day for real. So Amber is what we're talking about. Um, some like trees and sugar and like uh, you know freezing things in time and like I don't know. It's got like that cool orangey color. Um, and that's all I got. So go ahead. <laughs> I mean, that is that is uh, mostly correct. Uh, so, Amber. Uh, in my notes right here, it literally says, obligatory Jurassic Park mention. Um, Amber, as I mentioned, is the substance. Uh, I was going to call it a mineral, but as I learned, that's not technically true. Um, it is a trace fossil similar to things like um, footprints, or I guess a better analogy would be coprolites, which we've talked about, which would be fossil poop. Um, and so amber is essentially just a chunk of fossilized tree resin. If you notice from Jurassic Park, uh, the line that they say is the insect will land on a tree and get stuck in the sap, which is like sort of kind of true. Uh, if you actually look up what the difference between resin and sap is, it's mostly a consistency thing, but I don't think that there's like a hard and fast sort of rule. Um, okay. Basically tree ooze more or less. Um, and so the whole premise of Jurassic park was way back in the day, a mosquito bit a dinosaur and sucked its blood, then landed on a tree, got stuck in some of the resin, which then turned into Amber. And then scientists were able to take out dinosaur DNA from the blood that the mosquito had drank from that dinosaur. That is the whole premise of Jurassic Park. Congratulations. I've spoiled part of a movie from 20 years ago, almost 30 years ago. Um, that we have discussed before on this episode. We sure have. And so Amber is particularly famous within paleontology for preserving absolutely beautiful fossils. Of now, now why is that? So th the big thing is that you get a 3D... Um, in some cases, completely unaltered, like view of something, you know, if, particularly of arthropods, mostly insects in particular. Um, mm -hmm. But when they're preserved in rock, uh, that rock has been compressed. So you mostly only get like a 2D perspective of it uh, because, you know, insects don't tend to be particularly hardy animals. Uh, so they get smushed. And you only get to see the top and or bottom of the insect at a time. With amber, you can move it around in 3D. You can see all parts of it, presuming, you know, that the, all of the insect stayed in the amber. And mm -hmm. uh, they, they're just exceptionally well preserved because it's basically putting it in a little ball, a little see-through ball for scientists to come look at later. And... Uh, Amber itself, though, doesn't have to have fossils in it. doesn't have to have... They're called inclusions when there are things inside the amber. Th that is not, like, a prerequisite for being amber. The vast majority of amber is just that chunk of tree resin that is fossilized. I do have a question about how, um, as far as usefulness goes, like, I can imagine, mm -hmm. um, you know, looking at, you know, say a mosquito stuck in um, in amber or um, or an arthropod or anything else. And you can look at it, and it's you know, uh, you know somewhat translucent, and you can actually look into the mm -hmm. the amber, and you can see the species. I'm wondering how useful it is, though, besides just like 
looking at the thing because my I would think that it's one of those things that's kind of hard to like actually break apart and actually get to the preserved specimen. So these days we have all sorts of fancy technology that mm-hmm. lets you sort of like CT scan it and get a much better picture. Um, because not all amber is the super pretty, very translucent sort of thing that you see in Jurassic Park. Uh, right. Very, very rarely does it look like that. Most of that comes from one particular area, which which we'll talk about. Uh, but yeah, it is... You, you can do all sorts of fancy things because things like CT scans or other kinds of, you know, scanning technologies, uh, you know, the amber will be a different density than the wh- whatever is included in it. So if you scan it from multiple different angles, you can sort of, uh, you know, get a 3D picture that way of uh, of whatever's stuck inside the amber. Even if, you know, it's like the amber itself is opaque and you can't actually look at it, uh, you know, with your eyes. Mm-hmm. So it is mostly useful for just looking at stuff. That's true. Um, but looking at stuff in a way that no other type of fossil really lets you do. So for example, uh, I believe there's a very large group of like flies, I think arthropods and invertebrates in general are not really my thing. So I don't know how, how true that it is that it's flies per se, but some group of insects often caught in Amber uh, are identified today. And like different species are identified today by looking at their genitals. Awesome. Right. (laughs) So uh, if it's a 2d fossil, that is much harder. Whereas if it's a completely preserved, you know, 3D specimen in amber, if you know what fly genitals happen to look like, you can sure find them. Okay. So it sounds like it, there's at least a little nugget of truth to what uh, Jurassic Park was doing. And I think I know um, where that kind of goes astray. But the basic idea of, um, you know, specimen being caught in amber um, is used to preserve you know X, Y, and Z qualities. That basic premise is correct, even though I'm a. I think I actually might know where Jurassic Park kind of uh, stretches that too far. I mean, it stretches it really far in a couple of ways, but yeah. Um, okay. So it, a, you can't, to my knowledge, really get DNA even if you just like, if you caught a mosquito that had literally just bitten somebody. If you like try and get the blood, like it eats that blood just really? like it. Well, yeah, that's why mosquitoes do it. You know, hmm. um, they, they don't just you, do it for no reason. I thought that you wouldn't even be able to get like any kind of, um, uh, like any kind of DNA at all out of something that's just that old. Like DNA just doesn't well, last that Well, I mean long. that as well, but I was, I was just sort of getting to the point where it's like, even a mosquito that has just bitten somebody, you probably can't get that person's DNA from them. Because they have, they have like digestive enzymes and stuff. So it's like from from step one, it just doesn't work. And then, yeah, step two. Gotcha. Uh, there's been multiple studies. There was one in 1999 that like suggested that Amber could preserve DNA for like up to 100 million years. And then very quickly, uh, many people were like, mm, I don't think so. And so there was a follow-up. Stu- there were several follow-up studies at the time, but a very detailed one in 2013 uh, that basically suggested that it you know they found some 
not quite fully formed amber. So it is tree sap, but wasn't fully fossilized yet with uh, an insect inside of it. Uh, that's called copal when it's not fully uh, fossilized yet. And so they mm-hmm. tried to get DNA from that. So it was only um, like 10,000 or so years old and they couldn't even get DNA from that. So um, I'm not saying it's completely impossible, but it is very close to completely impossible. <laughs> Understood. Um, but that being said, uh, amber is also useful for a lot of other things. Uh, amber is very culturally important uh, in places where it occurs. Uh, it has been used for thousands and thousands of years in things like jewelry, uh, pottery, traditional medicines, uh, all sorts of different things. So it means a lot to various you know, different cultures, particularly where large outcrops of amber are found. Um, so it's not just useful for its fossils. It's also very decorative and also very just like culturally important to different groups of people. All right. Uh, so that is broadly what amber is. And I mentioned earlier that amber is not a mineral and a little bit of geology sort of sneaking in here. Um, so to be a mineral, you basically need to be abiotic. You need to be, uh, you know, a solid and also have a regular chemical structure. Uh, and amber only meets one of those. <laughs> uh, it's a solid, uh, but it is biotic. You know, it is made by life. Uh, and it also doesn't really have a set chemical formula. Different kinds of trees make different kinds of resin, which then turns into different kinds of amber. They're all chemically very, very different, typically. Um, so it's it's a little complicated. It seems very minerally, and it s- seems like it fits at like a rock and mineral show, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's technically not a mineral. Even though even things like ice are, ice is the one that when someone told me ice is a mineral, I was like, that whole meme where, yeah, it is. Um, But that whole meme where it's like the guy with like angry face with his arms crossed and the next frame is him just throwing his hands up. He's like, I guess. (laughs) That was me when I learned that ice is a mineral. I'm like, I I guess it is, but I don't like it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm not sure I like that one either, but I'll defer to you, I guess. Yeah. Uh, And so there are different ways to classify Amber, but not a good, like if you go to the Wikipedia page, there is like a classification system that they break down. I don't think it really makes sense because I think it said there were five classes and then within those some subclasses and it's like the different classes are differentiated in different ways. So it's not like, you know, uh, class one is all, all has this kind of chemical compound, all of class two has this other kind of compound like it's it it's more like class a has compound a um class b uh has this color and texture so the the different classes are not necessarily based on the same thing or sometimes based off of uh what plant is from which is very hard to tell uh plants as i've said several times on this show uh are aliens i don't (laughs) understand them at all uh for many reasons. And this one's actually kind of believable where it's like, even though plants might not be that closely related, sometimes they can make very, very similar resins, which then turn into very, very similar ambers. So it's like, even if you do like a chemical test of the amber, it can be really hard to figure out what plant that's from, especially if you don't even have those plants around anymore. So um, there are ways to classify amber. 
don't worry yourself about it. We will not be doing that here today. And so talk about a little bit of the history of amber. So um, amber, like I said, comes from plants, mostly trees. Uh, I think it's like probably like technically possible to get it from, you know, non-woody plants, but I, I think that's quite rare. Um, so the earliest known amber comes from the Carboniferous period uh, found in Illinois. So this was from around 320 million years ago. And if you know anything about the Carboniferous period, that kind of makes sense. It's the first time that we had like real large forests of, you know, any significant amount. There were some around before the Carboniferous, but they were not very extensive. Uh, during the Carboniferous, the almost the entire planet was covered in forest. So if there was a time for the first, you know, amber to show up, this would, this, this makes sense. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, however, this amber didn't really have any inclusions in it, really. Um, no cool insects or, or other things trapped inside of it to, to really find. Although I did find uh, this part really weird. So, like I said, sometimes it, it, or it's almost impossible to figure out what kind of plant made the amber. But you can generally tell broadly what group the plant fall, fell into, whether it was a gymnosperm, which would be things uh, like your conifers, pine trees, things like that today whether it's an angiosperm, which is basically every other kind of plant around today, you can tell more or less the large-scale group that the plant is in. And so this amber appears to be very, very similar to angiosperms, which is real weird because they had not evolved yet and would not <laughs> really would not really evolve for uh, over 100 million years. So... Oh, yeah. So that's a, that's a real head scratcher. Most people, I think the general consensus was that like, it's just a weird convergent thing. It's just a good compound to make resin out of, I guess. Weird. Um, mm-hmm. I, I find that more believable than we're just missing a hundred million years of angiosperms for some reason. <laughs> I find that uh, way, yeah. way, way less believable. Uh, Without knowing what I'm talking about, I think I agree with you. Well, because, and we will do a plants episode, some kind of plant episode eventually. Um, we'll have a guest on for that because I have no idea really what I'm talking about. Uh, but angiosperms, when I say like, if you think of a plant, you're thinking of an angiosperm. That's not an exaggeration. Like with the exception of like mosses, ferns, and conifers, every single plant that you could think of really is an angiosperm. So it's like, what about a carrot? Yes. Okay. Yep. That's the one I was thinking of. I don't know why, but that's where I went. <laughs> but yeah, so if a group that big and ecologically important had evolved that much earlier than we thought, we would that would shake up a lot of things is how we understand plant evolution. So simplest answer is often the best. Or I guess mm-hmm. the, the answer with the least exceptions is often the best, which is the actual definition of Occam's razor. Anyway, Correct. moving on. So the earliest amber with an arthropod inclusion. So this would be arthropods, uh, your things similar to insects, uh, things like your crustaceans as well. So the earliest one of those trapped in amber was in the late Triassic. So moving up quite a bit um, to around 230 million years. So almost 100 million years after that, after the first amber that we know of. Um, mm-hmm. 
and it, it wasn't really all that significant. I think it was like a partial one, which was still a new species because it's like, well, insects from the Triassic are very hard to come by. So chances are it's something new. And that's the generally the case with Amber where it's like insects. We, we know a lot about insect evolution just because of how many there are. So it's like just by statistics, a bunch of them are going to get preserved. Right. But if you find something in amber, chances are real good it's going to be a new species. <laughs> Sometimes an entirely new large group. That's like we have no we we know it's some kind of insect. We no idea anything else about it, never seen one before. That happens a lot with amber. Huh, so Okay. Amber really starts to become much more common in the Cretaceous and more recent. So uh, particularly like the middle Cretaceous, I'd say somewhere around 120 or so million years and more recent. Um, And that is hypothesized to be because of insects. So insects had been around for quite a while before this, but around this time is when the first like really significant tree boring group, you know, similar to, you know, if you live in the Northeast of the United States, you probably have heard of the emerald ash borer. It's a type of insect uh, that I think is native to Asia, somewhere in Asia, uh, that burrows into ash trees and kills them, more or less. And so uh, when an insect bores into a tree, they will produce their resin to as sort of a defense mechanism to try and trap or kill or otherwise get rid of uh, these insects that are attacking them. So... Uh, once insects figured out how to attack trees, trees were like, okay, I guess I need a defense now. <laughs> um, so that's hypothesized. Again, really hard to establish that link for sure. But that's it seems solid to me as someone who doesn't know much about amber. Okay. And so amber has been found pretty much all over the world. But if you hear about amber in regards to fossils, you pretty much will hear about it from one of four spots. So we'll talk about them uh, in a little bit of detail here. One we will talk about in much detail. Um, Is there a reason why just these four? Like, I I know you haven't said what the spots are yet. Maybe the four spots cover like 70% of the planet, but like. No. Okay. Um, Like, why? No, it just sort of happens to be. The right time and place, you know, like I said, during the Carboniferous, lots and lots of trees around. Uh, during the Cretaceous period, there's lots of trees around. Um, so two of these four are from the Cretaceous period. And then one is from the Eocene period, which also, or Eocene epic, which also had, you know, pretty much global rainforests, lots of trees. And then uh, the, the other of the four comes from the... Uh, late Oligocene, so around 25 million years ago. And Mm -hmm. again, around that time, it's pretty equatorial. Even today, it's pretty equatorial. So lots of rainforesty stuff. So it's just, there was a big forest here for a long time, trapped lots of bugs, and happened to be uplifted, you know, and eroded so that the amber is just sort of falling out while humans are here. And that's really the case with most fossils as well. Realistically, it's all just kind of random chance, which is annoying as a scientist, but it is what it is. <laughs> right. So uh, the first of the four, so the the oldest of the four, like uh, timeline wise, would be Lebanese amber found in Lebanon, a country in 
uh, sort of central Western Asia. And it comes from the early Cretaceous, so around 130, 125-ish million years ago. And uh, this is really important because, A, it's just really big. There's, there's quite a lot of it found pretty much all over the country and a little bit in surrounding countries. But this time period is really important, uh, again, going back to our evolution of plants, uh, because this preserves a time when, uh, before angiosperms. They, they were around, but not really as dominant as they are today. Uh, and so a big hypothesis that has been pretty well supported uh, is that a big reason that angiosperms became so successful is because insects and other arthropods uh, sort of co-evolved with them. You know, a lot of angiosperms are pollinated by insects. So uh, if angiosperms do real well, insects do real well and vice versa. So mm -hmm. it's, it captures a lot of arthropods before angiosperms, you know, got doing what they are doing today. And so therefore, you know, it captured a bunch of arthropods doing things differently than they do today. So that, do we, is that something we suspected before that they may have done differently and just confirmed it? Or was this like brand new information? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we had, we had suspected it. Um, I don't know particularly when this actually I have the, I have a tab open for it right now. I have so many tabs open. Um, <laughs> Let's see. I don't think it really says when it was found. Um, it says the oldest reports of Lebanese amber are from uh, 19th century accounts, so 1800s. Although basically it was people just kind of noting, man, this stuff really sucks as gems. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, uh, Lebanese amber tends to be more opaque than some of the other ambers that we're going to talk about. So it's not great for use as gems or other kind of decoration things. Um, so that's most of the... <laughs> people talking about it before it became sort of scientifically significant. But mm -hmm. uh, we had definitely anticipated that insects would be doing different things before, you know, th their main, you know, co-conspirator, <laughs> the angiosperms evolved. But it's good to have a sample, a good sample uh, from before that time. Right. So that is Lebanese amber. Next, we have Baltic amber. So the Baltics is sort of the northeastern area of Europe. Uh, this would be around like the north side of Germany uh, and in the Baltic Sea all around, uh, like I think Lithuania, uh, a lot of those other countries in like the northern, northern part of Europe. This is the mm -hmm. largest of all of the amber deposits in the world and where over 90% of global amber comes from. When you say the largest, do you just mean like the most number of specimens or like the most amber? The most amber by a okay. lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, like I said, like 90% of amber mined in the world comes from here. Uh, let me see if I can get a number because I believe I did see some kind of actual number. Um, so it was estimated that the forest that made this uh, amber produced over 100,000 tons of amber which is a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, that might not seem like a lot for something that is sort of a rock. You know, rocks are heavy. But uh, that is a lot of amber. So Yeah, I that, that seems quite significant. Yeah. So this Baltic amber comes from the Middle Eocene around 44 million years ago. Uh, we talked about the Eocene epic 
uh, during our episode about the Paleocene Eocene thermal maximum. And during the Eocene, like I said, almost global rainforests. There was really no like environments. I'm not gonna say no environments besides rainforests, but pretty close. Um, including what is now all the way, you know, not really known for rainforest, you know, Northern Germany, places like Finland, uh, not really known for, for rainforests to my knowledge, but, uh, this section of Amber, uh, contains almost entirely insects. I think I saw like 98% of the inclusions in this Amber were insects. So lots of bugs from this time. This is interesting at capturing sort of, post uh end cretaceous mass extinction it's not super close to the extinction around you know 20 million years afterward but you know like i said insects don't tend to preserve super well uh so it's just an interesting sort of snapshot to see how they were doing you know 20 million years or so afterward okay and so that is so that's the largest deposit what else do we yes next one that's a little closer to home we have dominican amber oh okay which is famous for a couple reasons. Uh, it is the, if, if you can think of one that's like a, a, a bug or other kind of arthropod in some amber that is very clear, you can just sort of hold it up to the light and see everything about it. That's Dominican amber. Uh, Dominican amber is well known for being very translucent and very glassy. It's also very famous for sometimes being blue. Really? Yeah. And I tried to look up like, they talked about some of the chemical reasons for this. I didn't particularly understand it. Um, organic chemistry was not my strong suit. I enjoyed the class, but I I'm, I did not take organic chemistry, too. Uh, and if you didn't understand it, then, well, listeners, you're oh, out yeah. of luck as far as this podcast is concerned. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely not even going to try to explain anything chemistry. Likely ever on this podcast, realistically. Um, but... Uh, yeah, blue amber. So at the beginning when you were like, is this kind of, you know, yellowish golden almost, I believe amber itself is even a color. Um, for the most part, that's true. Uh, but for some reason in the Dominican, sometimes it can be blue. Hmm. Okay. It, it, sure. Blue. And uh, so this one dates back to, so the Dominican's tropical-esque today. Um at least, you know, certainly much more tropical than, uh, you know, most of the mainland United States or North America. Um, but back th- uh, at this time when it was deposited during the late Oligocene, around 25 million years ago or so, it was very tropical. Um, and so amber itself can even give, you know, information about environmental change or, uh, you know, ecosystem changes just from the sap itself, even if there wasn't really any insects or anything trapped in it. Uh, which I think is really cool. Yeah. And so, for the last of the main four, we have I was, Burmese Before we started amber. recording, before yeah. we started recording, just for the record, I was told that uh, we were going to spend quite a lot of time on Burmese uh, Amber. So, uh, Buckley, I assume yeah. this is going to be, looking at our um, our document here, this is kind of the, uh, the main topic of what we're going to be discussing today. Yes and no, and I really didn't intend it to be. Um... So in my notes, this part says Burmese Amber, colon, the sad part. Um, So purely by coincidence, um, friends of the pod, Dr. Emma Dunn and soon to be Dr. uh, Nasai Baraja 
uh, appeared on an episode of another paleontology podcast called Paleocast, talking about the ethics and such of Burmese amber, because they have a paper coming out uh, relatively soon talking about it and actually putting numbers to uh, some some of these really, really at, sketchy at best and illegal and human rights abuses at worst things about Burmese amber. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's going to be super happy fun times uh, for the rest of this episode. Yeah. Everybody. So um, I will do my best to explain some of these things, but we will have a link to uh, they were on two episodes of PaleoCast uh, each 45 minutes. So if, if you like me, listen to things at 1.3 to 1.5 times speed, you can do that in about an hour or so. Um, so I would highly recommend you go listen to that. Uh, we'll have a link down in the show notes, but, um, they are much more knowledgeable about this kind of thing than I am. And, uh, obviously, like I said, they are friends of the pod as well as paleo paleo cast is just a very well-made podcast as well. So, um, please go give that a listen and it gives way more context to this than I will, but here we are. So. All right. Burmese amber um, comes from a the country of Myanmar, which has in the past been called Burma. Some people still call it Burma, and I don't understand why. I know. Um, um, I, I am only vaguely familiar with this, but I know that, like the fact that the name got changed was a sore spot for many, um, for many Burmese. Um, and so many of them chose not to go along with that name change. Um, it's been quite a while since I looked into this, but I'm, I am yeah. aware that there were some people that were like quite upset about the fact that the name was even changed and kind of refused to go along with it. Right. And I'm, I'm not sure what the general consensus of the people who live there is. So I will go back and forth. Just know I'm meeting the same place, whether I say Burma or Myanmar, same place. Yes. So this Amber comes from the late Cretaceous, which is a hundred ish million years ago and if you've seen anything about amber in the last probably close to 10 years it's from here um particularly because some of the fossils from burmese amber are absolutely incredible you have your standard stuff that a lot of the other amber has like insects um which actually makes it a really good sort of foil to the Lebanese amber, because by this point, angiosperms have already sort of taken over. So it's cool to get a before and after for the insects and angiosperms relationship between the Lebanese amber and uh, Burmese amber. So there's a, there's a reason why this amber is so popular with scientists. It's because it, it truly is, you know, really incredible. Some of the things that it preserves, for example, uh, feathers. There's likely dinosaur, but also definitely some bird feathers preserved in amber. Super cool. Uh, how can we tell the difference? Like, how can we tell, oh, this is a dinosaur feather versus this is a bird? Like, how do we know the difference? It preserves the structure so well that we can tell, uh, and also some skin stuff, but uh, in some cases it has preserved like an entire baby bird wing. Or entire like wow, bird okay. bird feet, so it's like we we have it, it's very hard to get like a full vertebrate <laughs> stuck in amber because uh, we're not, not tiny, tiny 
you're right. Um, although there have been whole frogs trapped in amber, in, in mm-hmm. from from Burmese amber. There was a snake embryo stuck in Burmese amber. Uh, wow. A ge- a gecko foot, including like the clingy toe pads that they use to climb on walls and ceilings and stuff, preserved in Burmese mm-hmm. amber. And these are just some of the highlights that I was able to find. These, you know, amber in, amber in general is just produces, like I said, absolutely gorgeous fossils. Burmese amber produces the, in my opinion, the coolest of all of these beautiful fossils. However, yeah, as we've why talked about, I mean, just, just because, I mean, no reason in particular. I think it's just a really interesting time. Um, you know, by the late Cretaceous, birds were fully around and doing stuff. Um, most of the groups that we have today, you know, frogs don't have a really great fossil record. So to have an entire preserved frog stuck in amber is great. Uh, snakes also don't really have a great fossil record. To have an embryo, mm-hmm. an embryo of all things, you know, that just doesn't happen. So just sort of purely by happenstance. In my opinion, some of the stuff from Burmese amber uh, is uh, some of the coolest amber specimens. However, Mm. as we've talked about, uh, as we sort of mentioned, uh, this amber is extremely problematic. So the amber is problematic. Yes. As well as a lot of other things, the people, right? Like the people around it, both. So. Mike, you are a student of history. <laughs> I this is always where I get a little bit nervous. Like, how bad am I going to get? Down? <laughs> okay. okay. I mean, to be to be fair, you teach U.S. history. I I teach global this year, but I'm not very good at it. Okay. Um. So, how much do you know about the recent goings on in Burma slash Myanmar? I, this is we were discussing before um, we fit, we first started recording today. Um, I know that there is both longstanding problems uh, in that country that are going back you know decades at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember there being um, about a year or two ago. I remember there being some sort of problem um, between. I remember like Facebook was accused of like perpetuating a genocide there. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last couple of years, and there was um, an election that, like, either was fraudulent or the election was fine, but the results of it were, you know, being challenged. Um, that I, I I am aware of a number of problems there, but I have not um, had the chance to look into it um, all that deeply. Okay. So I'm going to go into a very, like, insultingly brief, uh, quick history of Burma slash Myanmar over the last, you know, handful of decades. So I'm going to for sure leave a bunch of stuff out. These are just the, I was going to say highlights, but that's not the right word. Uh, So (laughs) the country gained independence. Yes. uh, The country gained its independence from England in 1948. And of course it did. Right. Uh, And, uh, had a bunch of like armed conflicts from different, you know, regional groups uh, until the country was more or less united under military rule from 1962 until 1988. 
Uh, after lots and lots of uprisings and protests in 1988, the military held an election in uh, 1990 where a woman from the opposition party named Aung San Suu Kyi likely would have become the leader of the country. However, the military uh, placed her under house arrest and declared the election fraudulent. Throughout the 90s and 2000s, Myanmar basically stayed under military control despite constant clashes between the military and various armed rebel groups. Mm -hmm. Uh, The military eventually sort of relented and allowed for a civilian government to form uh, in 2008 and sort of transition to a very fragile partnership between the civilian government and the military. And uh, that same person that was placed under house arrest was released from house arrest in 2008. And then in uh, 2016, uh, she was uh, elected. I don't remember exactly what they call their leader, but the leader of the country. Okay. Uh, Also in 2016, a couple months after that, uh, the genocide of the Muslim minority Rohingya people began. Uh, Like you said, I didn't have this in the notes, but it was not like for legal reasons. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was not caused by Facebook. It it probably wasn't helped by Facebook. Sure. Um, But for legal reasons, it was not caused by Facebook. Um, And so that sort of steady oh and that that also continues until today that's still a thing that's happening um and uh that sort of fragile coexistence between the civilian government and the military existed uh, up until february of last year just over a year ago uh when the military declared that the recent election was invalid and placed on sung Suu chi under house arrest again and uh since then in the past year uh, thousands of protesters and rebels have been killed by the military, and those are just the ones we know about. I think the a number that I heard was a little over 10,000. And those are, again, those are just the ones we know about. So um, there's a lot of really gnarly stuff going on over there right now. And there has been for the last couple of years, but especially right now. So, yeah, not sure if we have any, uh, any Burmese listeners um, or people that know uh, people there, but, you know, the, uh, you know, hearts go out to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But how does any of that relate to paleontology? Amber is incredibly valuable, both to science as a resource and also just as a commodity. Like I said, various peoples from all over the world, A, like to collect it because it looks pretty, but B, uh, also it's just very culturally significant, particularly to uh, people in China, there are lots of amber deposits in China. We didn't mention them because they aren't some of the big famous ones. Um, but people in you know a lot of different places in China have used it historically for traditional medicines, jewelry, pottery, things like that. Um, and you know, Myanmar shares a border with China. And so a lot of uh, the production of amber was controlled by the military or uh, at least initially was uh, actually controlled by a separatist group up until around 2017 when the military was like, mm, mm, all that stuff that's, you know, making you all that money, that's ours now. Um, and basically took over the mining operations as a way to fund the, the military government or the military side of the government at the time, because 2017 uh, was still in that sort of, fragile coexistence between the civilian government and the military. Um, Right. Around 2010 is when sort of that armed, um, 
you know, separatist group really started ramping up production. Also around that time, some of the amber deposits in China uh, had started to become depleted and not really economic to mine anymore. So, uh, you know, some people, the people in Myanmar basically were like, well, we have some amber to sell you. Um, and so you'll notice a really sizable uptick in publications about fossils in amber starting in like the late 2000s into the early to mid 2010s. And then really, really going up throughout the late 2010s into 2020. Um, mm-hmm. It is currently and was at the time illegal to smuggle amber or fossils, either or, um, out of Myanmar. But they, like I said, they have a big border with China. And a lot of it is smuggled over that border to be sold in China in various marketplaces and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um. The entire time, whether it was the military under the control uh, of the mines or uh, the first group uh, that was sort of in control of it, the mining conditions have never been safe. You know, I didn't see anything specific about things like forced labor. But given the track record of the military, it would not at all surprise me. And so, basically... Uh, there was a specimen published in March of 2020 uh, that was very high profile. It made the cover of Nature magazine or, you know, the journal Nature, probably the biggest science journal in the world. It made it on the cover and uh, a, that was uh, a full lizard skull, a really, really cool, unique lizard skull that uh, made a bunch of people go, hmm. That doesn't seem right. And then a bunch of people who, you know, well, be, being on the front page of nature draws a lot of heads or, you know, turns a lot of heads. So it, a lot of people, it, you know, yeah, yeah, a lot of people who were sort of aware of some of the things going on in Myanmar at the time were like, nature, what are you doing? Like, do you not happen to look up where any of these specimens come from? And all of that sort of, bubble especially with everybody being very frustrated in 2020 to begin with um but that led to a bunch of different you know paleontology societies um being like hey maybe we shouldn't be supporting this um so for example like i said that cover uh, or that specimen was published in nature in march of 2020 in april of 2020 the society of vertebrate paleontology uh, basically like the club for vertebrate paleontologists, at least basically published a very open letter, uh, proposing a moratorium on publication of any fossil specimens, uh, purchased from sources in Myanmar after June, 2017, which was when the military took control of the mines. Um, several other places have gone further and said, we will not publish anything to do with Myanmar Amber anymore, because it's like, we have no idea when you got this, when this was mined. We have no idea, you know, um, you know, any of the, like, you know, even if people are like, well, science is science, you know, who cares if a little human rights get in the way. Um, a lot of the really important scientific information is kind of just erased when it's just sort of bought in a market like that, you know, 
knowing where things were in the ground is just as important as, you know, what kind of animal it is. Uh, My main question with all this, though, is that if you're suspending you know, scientific research on that front, um, is, you know, is this one of those things that's, you know, designed to, you know, protest against the the government and show, you know, you're not going to do it, but will actually hurt the people on the ground more often who had nothing to do with any of this, you know, the scientists and the workers that are, you know, you know, extracting all of this amber. Is this one of those things that could, you know, do more harm than good to a lot of the people on the ground? Um, I'd say if those people were being compensated properly for their work, maybe, but that at least that is kind of known to be not the case. You know, okay. these people are paid very little considering how much this amber is worth. You know, like a, if, if, you know, the people, you know, obviously it's not the military picking up a piece of amber and being like, mm, this is worth a lot, a lot of money. They have people who, you know, either they pay to know, or they threaten <laughs> to know mm-hmm. uh, how much these pieces, these specimens will go for. And uh, they basically, you know, say, hey, scientist, I got this really cool thing here. How about 10 grand? Uh, and granted, I, I don't think, you know, sci- most most scientists would buy things like directly from the military like that. But if it ends up at some, you know, marketplace in China, you know, the marketplace bought it from the military people or bought it from somebody who did or so on and so on supply chains. Um, regardless, money is going to somebody nefarious here who is likely abusing workers to get it and, you know, smuggling it out of the country illegally. Because like I said, there are laws there. Just because the military is the one violating them doesn't mean that there's not still laws. Um, And this is something that um, Emma and Nasaiba mentioned in their conversation with the host of Paleocast is they did like a real deep dive into every publication uh, involving Burmese Amber that they could find. And... I, I might be misremembering this. I, I only listened to it once. Um, but I believe out of like around 200 publications that they found, I think they said one of them had proper documentation or even mentioned anything about documentation for the specimen. That's not enough. No. Um, so it's like, okay, um, nature, are you cool with publishing this specimen that we have no idea where it came from? That doesn't, that doesn't, let alone, like I said, putting aside any human rights things, uh, that just doesn't sound like good science to me. <laughs> that This reminds me of the one meme I don't remember uh, from what TV show, but it's something along the lines of, like, I, you know, I can excuse the racism, but I draw the line of animal cruelty. Yes, I've, I've seen, you know, I've seen that as well, racism. Too. Yeah, you, you know, I can excuse the human rights violations, but I draw the line at bad science. Like, it, mm-hmm. we're, I think we're drawing the line at, you know, the wrong spot here, but okay, fine. Right. So there have been many journals and things that have basically said, well, many is maybe too strong a term. There have been several journals that have said, we will not publish on that. You have to have proper documentation for it that you will submit with your paper. Um, and if it's from after 2017, we're just not going to take it. Um, some have been just, a, again, like a flat out, we will not accept any papers regarding Burmese Amber right now. Um, mm-hmm. However, there have also been a lot of people playing devil's advocate and also a bunch of people just being like, I want to publish this, so I'm going to publish it. 
I want the fancy, I want the publication. So I'm going to do it. Um, so yeah. that's not cool. Um, Emma and Nasaiba put it much more eloquently than that's not cool. Uh, so please go listen to that episode. Also, Dave Marshall, the host, uh, does an excellent job. So please, 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 please go listen to that episode. This is something that's really important to me. I'm directing you to another paleontology podcast that's not ours, but it's something that, that this is a thing that needs to be talked about. Um, we're going to try. I haven't reached out to them or anything about this, but um, when that paper does come out, they, they said in a couple months, uh, when that paper does come out, I would really like to have, um, you know, Emma and Nasaiba and some of their other co-authors as well uh, on the show just to sort of talk about it in much more eloquent detail than I possibly could. So, um, and also yeah, sort will, of, yeah, oh, go ahead. just, if you haven't had a chance to listen to their episode, they've been guests on our show before and mm-hmm. both are just truly fantastic. Um, I believe, um, uh, um, oh, who was, um, was it Dr. Dune that was, um, on our, um, our 50th episode spectacular? Uh, both of them were. Oh, that's right. Okay. So they've been, they were on together as well as, um, on our, you know, sort of compilation, you know, what the science mean to you and how'd you get into science episode. Yeah. So if you haven't had a chance and you don't know who we're talking about, you can go back and listen to those episodes. Um, and they are, you know, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and something else that they pointed out, and this is a little bit off topic for the Amber side of things, but, um, well, I think they said very, very few, I, I'm not going to say a number cause I don't remember it, but, um, easily less than 10%, probably less than 5% of all papers regarding Burmese Amber included a Burmese scientist. How, what percentage? Like le- easily less than five. Okay. Which was the whole point of our initial conversation with them. I believe that was episode 33 about decolonizing paleontology, where it's like you go, you get stuff from a place. You don't care. You don't care about the scientists who were there. You just want it mm-hmm. kind of for, for yourself. Um, right. So there's a lot of that going on, particularly with Burmese Amber, but just in paleontology in general. Um, but at this point, this we're digressing. Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> This is a very complicated topic about a really cool thing that we can learn so much about. Like I said, Amber is the source of, in my opinion, some of the coolest fossils. Because not only does it preserve the bones, not only does it preserve, you know, maybe certain chemical things about the the animal or the plant, but like an entire frog cool <laughs> the the toe pads the of a, the toe pads of a gecko where it's like but before doing the research for this episode if you would have asked me hey do you think we will ever have gecko toe pads in the fossil record i'd tell you no i'm like i would i would have no idea you know <laughs> or, or you know when did geckos get their toe pads to climb up and down walls and things i'd be like i don't know i kind of don't think we'll ever really know that um but here we are amber makes impossible things in paleontology possible but comes at such a huge cost you know let alone financially but also just in the terms of like human rights (laughs) so um we're not going to take a particular stance on this podcast but i kind of feel like you know where at least i stand uh, on this subject so (laughs) that's pretty much going to wrap it up amber is really really cool 
um, and when it's ethically sourced, is some of the coolest paleontology and paleontological specimens out there. Yeah, don't get mad at you know the amber itself. Get mad at you know at humans, in the way humans right. you know are you know using or abusing you know anything. But in this case, you know amber is what we're talking about. Right, and also just a, a little bit more of a, a digression here as we're wrapping up. Um, something that I've seen people do, like a, a devil's advocate, or maybe just them being a devil, um, <laughs> on uh, around various parts of the internet is. You know, would you rather that that piece of amber with that precious gecko's foot um, just, you know, be sold off into a private collection, never to be seen again, or just not be mined at all and, and you know, get lost to, to time as, you know, many fossils do. And I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've talked a lot about how I hate private collections. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've mentioned before that, uh, the very famous T-Rex specimen, Stan, uh, was sold into a private collection for like th- over $30 million relatively right. recently. And that made me real mad. As um, it should. But at least to my knowledge, in that case, uh, there were no human rights abuses. So uh, would I rather fossils be lost to time rather than actual human beings suffer? Uh, duh. Yep. Like it's what? <laughs> And I don't know how anybody's playing devil's advocate with that stance, uh, but you'd be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) So um, anyway, we've rambled long enough about tragedies. So we will see you all next week with hopefully, I mean, next week's spoilers, a Mike takes the wheel episode. So uh, maybe. Which means that neither of us know what we're talking about yet. That is correct. So I'm hoping, (laughs) fingers crossed, that Mike will. Uh, maybe be a little more cheerful after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a whole lot to be uh, cheerful about today. However, this has been episode 62 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike and that is Gavin, and we will see you all next week. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fenella Campanino. It was sound edited by Mike Bryson and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you. 